Hey pod fans, Evans here, wishing you a very happy new year and all the best for 2022. Put together a podcast here, 2021's best chats, looking back at some of the fine folk we had a chat with over the last year and some of the funny, more entertaining moments from the likes of Pete the Condor Mount, Chris Burkhardt, John Frank, a couple of amazing photographers, and of course, Andy King, Gabriel Medina's coach. He was a good laugh too. Don't forget, do check out shop.wavelengthmag.com. You can see our subs offers on there for the magazine, volume 261. That's the latest. Some brilliant subscriptions offers on there in the shop. And of course, plenty of other good surf gear to check out there. Enjoy the show. We'll talk to you soon. We like the Condor. The we work with him. We, we commentate with him. He's part of the team. Well, should we have a word with him? I gave him a call. This is what he had to say. Yeah, Pete, how you doing? Yeah, things are good. Things are good. I, I, I'm kind of liking this home thing. I just got a few questions. No, Monday, um, we don't need him. He only, he only slows me down anyway, so it's probably for, <laughs> it's, it's probably for the best. Tell us a little bit. Um, obviously, this winter, it's been, it's been a good one over there. You had, you had a good way back in December. Back, a little bit of background on the winter. How's, how's it all been going? Been doing plenty of surfing. ton of it. Um, and, you know, even not the big days it's just been non-stop i mean ever since december started it, it has just been day after day after day in great conditions that's the other part that's been so nice i mean generally winter time we get a lot of you know fronts that bring south winds and that's not really that great for here but um there's been none of that it's been just either glassy or light offshore or, um you know even northeast which are generally usually fall type conditions but we've just been having it all winter long so um conditions after that la nina it sends a lot of that uh energy north of us so we get the swells but uh we keep the conditions optimum which has been amazing really too for here you know like uh, the water's been a little bit chilly but you just put on a little extra rubber and you're fine and i guess that first week let's kind of think about january the 8th that first week after after well first new year after the holidays a lot of people are feeling a bit Maybe they overate or, you know, whatever. It's kind of out of shape. You were obviously, you know, feeling pretty sprightly coming into that coming into that session. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, it has to do with, I mean, a lot of reps. Um, you know, all through December, you know, there was a December 8th swell, which I really think is a, it was a catalyst for why, it, you know, I was feeling as comfortable as I was on the 8th of January. And, and another big part of it is, the, uh, the inspiring of performances from John, you know, and, and that's why I've been up there more than anyone is this because, you know, selfishly, I'm not there to kind of help you know, make sure that he's supported um, and safe, you know, whether it be from water safety standpoint or, or just being there as dad. So that's really what inspired me to go every swell. I mean, he's the one who's like going, are we going? It's going to be, it's going to be up, right? We're going, we're going. So I've been there for that reason. And then, you know, we're taking turns watching each other's backs and, uh, so he's really good on a ski, which is, and he's had a lot of opportunities to kind of learn, you know, we had a toe, you know, there's been like, gosh, there was a, a big toe opportunity even before the eighth where he, and I think it was on Surfline where he came in and had to pick me up after a wave that I got smoked on. And so he's just been getting more and more confidence. And I think he's, he mentioned it the best of saying, oh yeah, I've gotten like 10 years of experience in in just one season because we've had so many opportunities to serve it. But going back to why the eighth was so special, um, you know, on, 
on January is because, again, all that opportunity. But I actually was watching some video from the December 8th day that, you know, that was when the first time we saw Kai go, and that's when Twiggy got his big one. And we, you know, we did a bunch of interviews from that too. But that day I was watching a bunch of video. I was like, man, you could be a little bit deeper and you could actually kind of backdoor the bowl and, you know, just start analyzing. And so on the 8th of January, I, I know I hadn't surfed all morning. John had been going, I'd been watching, doing water safety. And then I, I decided, I was like, okay, I'm just going to go catch a wave or so. And I'm going to paddle about 20 feet deeper than I usually do on my lineups because I feel like if I can get there, then maybe I can backdoor it. And I just visualized this thing and all of a sudden the wave popped up and I dug for it. And as soon as I stood up, I'm like, Ooh, this is a little deep, a little deep here, but you know, the opportunity is what I was talking about and, you know, and visualizing and, and it just came, came. I mean, the wave itself actually helped a lot too, because it turned and opened up and generally it, that wave doesn't do that. You know, I was just expecting to probably get pounded, but as soon as I got up into it, it just opened up into this glory, just, stadium which is awesome <laughs> so i was really lucky just the clip is feels like really kind of re-watchable and re-watchable it even starts off i love the narration on the on the boat i guess someone's like oh look at the condor as you're paddling in that's john oh yeah the condor go Was that the best wave in surfing ever? So, so it's John, it's John, Jamie Mitchell, and then uh, Kurt Myers, and they're all sitting together on three different skis, right? John's on my my ski or our ski, right? And then uh, you know Jamie Mitchell was sitting. I, I can't remember who he's sitting with. It might have been JoJo um, Roper, and then Kurt's on his own ski. So you kind of hear all of them yeah. right next to each other, and that's what I. You're right. I think that that clip as a whole. Um, it, it's built it's like a little story right a 20 second story that <laughs> yeah. kind of uh, has a couple chapters in it and it's it, yeah it's a it's a pretty neat even i get a little bit of a, a buzz watching it so i think jamie goes oh my god you get about i guess you're kind of about midway down and you're kind of committed to backdooring that massive slab there's a few moments it looks like where your board is just kind of doing quite a lot as well like uh, rail you know there's a bunch of sort of bit sucking out particularly on the bottom it goes a bit below sea level is this do you, how aware are you of that when you're kind of when you're surfing the way but it looks like i don't want to say sketchy because not really the right word but do you know what i mean you see your board and it's kind of yeah. it, it's frightening it's around a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, i mean that's a that board specifically i mean i've had my magic 10 footer which is the kind of the turquoise green one that i got on the you know the big wave on the eighth um so this one's a little bit smaller actually it's a lot of bit smaller it's lower volume it's a little bit more of a performance gun. You know, it's a 910, so it's a little bit smaller. Not by much, but volume-wise, it's a lot smaller. So it definitely feels the elements a little bit more, but it's also more maneuverable. So it kind of, I think, helped in that sense because it was able to kind of fit in those little weird creases and 
Um, you know, I'm, I'm standing there. My na- legs are narrow. I generally was, you know, if I were to really dissect it, I was like, dude, I should have been lower. I should have been like this and that. You know, I should have been deeper. Yeah. <laughs> All these things. <laughs> you look at it when you start analyzing it. But in the moment, like literally, that's the purest form of living in the moment. It is you're just reacting. So I don't really even remember any of that stuff happening. All I remember is when I, I turned the corner and, and I saw that the wave was just literally going to open up. I just was like, that's when I kind of raised my hands and like, all of that stuff kind of came like, wow, this is a, the way of my life. I'm going to enjoy this for the second, you know, and it, it's, yeah, it's uh, something why I think surfing is so popular is that you, you ride a wave and you're not thinking about what you're doing tomorrow and you're not thinking about what happened yesterday. It's literally so in the moment. It's just the purest form. I think for each person, it's a little different and, if anything, I would say that 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 evolves over time. Like in the beginning, you know, as a young buck, you know, who's just like going on trips for the magazine or, or trying to shoot bows for, you know, surf line or whatever, you're just thinking about like, you know, oh, front lit, tight action. You're thinking about all these like, you know, kind of buzzwords that you've heard over the years. But as time goes on, you sort of realize that like it's critical to put a put a piece of yourself into that photograph and a lot of times what that means is like you have to experience it in some way. Like a photograph is kind of meaningless if you didn't have any intention behind why you shot it. So for me, I think a good photograph really has to represent like a place and a time, whether it's a place and a time in in your life or a place and a time in somebody else's life, Uh, maybe the athletes, maybe the location that was significant, you know? Um, And it's also an image that you're willing to talk about, an image that you're willing to share, an image that you have something to say. And if you have something to say about it, it's usually a good sign that that photograph is meaningful and it might be valuable in some capacity. So I guess that's, those are kind of the anecdotes I look for. And, and you know, what I've realized is that in the grand scheme of things, those photographs that might be the most meaningful, they aren't like these perfect front lit action photos where the waves are, you know, where it's bluebird and offshore, it might be a more moody image. It might be something that, you know, just means something more to you as a person. If standing at like back door off the wall or something with a 600 next to a bunch of guys is, is one end of the surf spectrum, um, what's, what's the opposite end? I think growing up, like driving up the coast of California to try and find empty waves, like that was always my experience, you know? And it, and it wasn't just surfing. It, was, it wasn't just surf photography. It was like, this is, this is what I remember as a kid, like, you know, ditching, you know, dodging fences and like running across a field with elephant seals and you're surfing a peak by yourself. So when it came to surf photography as a, as kind of a career path, it might seem kind of cheesy, but I think the obvious other end of the spectrum would be standing on a beach in some cold place like Norway, you know, where it's snowing and it's remote and you're looking for, you know, these, these potentially like, remote unique waves but i think if i'm thinking about this in a deeper more personal perspective what what pipe and backdoor represents me is the person who's taking zero risk who's sitting there with a 600 millimeter lens a big gulp and they literally have like they know for sure what they're going to get you know what you're going to get you go to hawaii you know you know the images you're going to get so to me the other end of the spectrum isn't so much about scoring perfect waves 
versus scoring dismal waves in inhospitable conditions. It's about taking risks, going anywhere in the world that asks more of you as a photographer, as a creative, as a person, somewhere you feel kind of scared and out of your element. You know, you're taking a leap of faith. I mean, that's the opposite of the spectrum. I heard you say as well in a, in a previous interview that if you if you do go to shoot somewhere like Piper or whatever, you're basically just replicating, you know, stuff that's been done before. You're not going to like really discover or create something new. Although having said that, I remember seeing your um, photos from Mundaka and thinking that they, they did look discernibly different. So I just want to ask you a little bit about how do you go about like, is, do you know, is that something you set out to do and how, how do you kind of make that happen? How do you, put your own kind of stamp on an image and make something kind of that's recognizably yours. Oh man, that, that means a lot. I, uh, I appreciate you even saying that because it was, it was kind of crazy, you know, going to, my, it was actually, that was my first trip to, um, to France and Spain and, and you know, shooting Hossegur and, and all these places that I had grown up staring at photos of, you know, I was, enamored by the, the ruler edge sandbars of Mundaka. We have so much research at our fingertips, so many opportunities to like look back at what's been done. And I think that being a student of the practice, like being a student of surf photography, being a student of magazines, you know, just like looking at everything you can, absorbing it all, not because you want to replicate it, but rather you want to do the opposite. Like if I know what's out there, you know, then I know what else I could do. Like I, I know that, you know, Mundaka, what I have seen are these epic photos from the water, you know, where there's like the church and like the, you know, the brick, like, you know, of the, of the like little town behind and yeah. just these perfect pits. And then I've seen these lineup photos. I've, I, I know what I had seen because it was seared into my mind. And so when I went there, I kind of tried to just like I would anywhere else. And, and it's the same approach I would take to really anywhere any assignment in the world is like, if I have to go shoot in a new place, I want to give this place the, the time it deserves and walk like 360 degrees around my subject. You know, I, I remember driving to the far beach where you could like look into the wave. Yeah. And I remember like, I remember going to the very highest point I could and then looking down from like this bridge and looking down from like the actual beach and just kind of like giving it the respect it deserves it'd be like me showing up at pipe and just seeing like, Oh, there's some photographers. I'm going to go post up next to them as opposed to like going there and, and kind of giving the respect that this place commands and, and looking at it from all perspectives. And I think that's the hardest thing that we do as, as photographers or even as like editors, like trying to tell a new story of an old place. Let's hear from John Frank. started for me um i've been shooting still photos for a couple of the australian surfing magazine uh waves and tracks magazine mostly back in the early 90s i'd probably been doing it for four or five years and i was spending a couple of months each each season in hawaii shooting over there and i remember it must have been 93 or 94 i'd called the editor at waves from um public phone box at the uh, Pearl Ridge Cinemas. You know, this was pre-everything, so I was on, on the phone box putting in my quarters. I may have even rung, rung in reverse charges, but um, <laughs> it was Ank. And 
I just told him I'm quitting. I'm just a bit sick of sort of photography. I, I want to get out. I, I think I've seen everything I need to see. It's um, I want to do something else kind of thing. And he's like, oh, right, well, do you want to make a movie? Just straight off the bat. I was like, I want a surf movie. He's like, yeah, I, I, I want to make a surf movie. Do you want to come and shoot it for me? So right then I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. So I flew home a couple of weeks later, went and saw Kidman in his office, and he said, I'm quitting, I'm doing one more issue. Uh, let's go and do a movie. And, and that was litmus. So from the beginning... Andrew had a couple of ideas. He wanted to do something with Wayne down in Victoria and the TP and all that. So that was one. And the other idea that he had was Derek Hind at J-Bay. He wanted to go and film Derek at J-Bay because he'd been there a couple of years before and seen Derek surfing uh, on probably the first fish one that Derek had. The idea of featuring all these like middle-aged men, you know, it doesn't that seems quite risky in terms of kind of yeah. surfing and what's commercial or sort of you know, what, what flies in surfing? We, we didn't overthink it at all. I, I, I don't think we thought about marketing the thing. I don't think we thought about who would want to watch it. We didn't have much money, um, so we were shooting it on pretty shitty old high video cameras, yeah. which were troublesome in lots of ways, but that was all we could afford. Um, I think we just literally, well, I don't know whether we were just naive or stubborn or, or just stupid, but we just made the movie that we wanted to, to make. I mean, there was no strategic thought that went into it at all. Sure. It was, you know, Wayne Lynch is an interesting human being and no one ever talks to him. So let's go and talk to him. That was Andrew's thing. And I, that sounded good to me. So we did that. And then he'd seen Derek, like I said. So Derek was an easy one. And then the whole island thing came up because I think we were, we'd bought round-the-world tickets. So it took us a year to film Litmus. We took a year off. And that's the beauty of being 24 years old and have, not having kids and just being free is that you can literally take a year and just you can take your time and at, at that point in your life you maybe appreciate it in some way but it's not until you're older that you look back and you really can see what a what a privilege that having that freedom is to have the time to to sort of explore a place and so I think I can't remember who came up with Ireland but it was agreed that Ireland was a place that we thought was interesting for no reason other than we liked the sound of it and then I think somehow Joel because he it's his last name's Fitzgerald. We thought that was a pretty good fit. It didn't get any more intellectual than that. <laughs> it was like, Fitzgerald, that's an Irish name. He should come to Ireland with us. And he was mates. He was mates with Andrew, him and Kai. And I'd done trips with him and uh, his brother and, and TF. Uh, I'd done a trip previously with them to, to the Mentorize a couple of years prior, so we all knew each other. And it was literally like, Ireland sounds like a fascinating place. Neither of us have ever been there. We've never really seen anything about it. We think there's a bit of a surf scene there, but we don't know. You know, I mean, the guys have been surfing there for 20 or 30 years before we got there, but it was still pretty underground. So 
we just went and we spent at least three months over there filming that the section for litmus we bought an old van in london for like 500 quid or something and we drove it up through scotland and then we went across i think we took it on the ferry from scotland over to to ireland and we drove over to the west coast and we connected with uh, richie fitzgerald yeah and his amazing clan over there in donegal and I we I don't know it was just this it just fit with with where we were at in in our lives and we didn't want to go anywhere else we were quite happy so yeah we stayed there until I think I left in the middle of November or towards the end of November and that's when I went over and filmed Tom Curran in California so I flew from there to California and then from there to Hawaii so. In Britain, at least at the time, I mean, people sort of knew that there were these like great waves in Ireland. Like, it's got it's cold water in there was like the kind of the top line that you'd heard. But I guess we all kind of just what we'd see a bit. People sort of imagine it's been a bit like Cornwall, but just like a lot better. But the similar kind of waves, particularly like the bit, was kind of really sort of like a like a mind blowing thing of like fuck. It looks like you know fucking hell. It looks like pipeline. Yeah, we knew nothing about the surf. Uh... I carried one board on that trip. I think Ank had probably only one himself. I think we just decided we were going to take one surfboard each. And we were surfing quite a lot. Andrew, more than me, he, I mean, he he didn't shoot anything in J-Bay. I shot the whole, the whole thing, which was annoying, so I had to watch him surf all day at J-Bay, which was... Frustrating. Javo's not my kind of wave, but still, to be standing, I, I wasn't used to just shooting from the beach at that point. It was a new kind of thing for me off a tripod. Normally, I'm in the water, but um, yeah. Well, we look. We'd been out to the point there, and and we'd we'd done a bit of exploring over the, the sort of weeks and months we were there. And I think that's that session that that was in the film with Joel um, out there by himself. That I think that was probably towards the end of the trip. So we. I'd, I remember I'd had a couple of really good surfs out there. Um, for some reason, Joel wasn't there, or that might have been after he left. But we knew the wave was there. We had our eyes on it. And I, I come from Cronulla, and there's a lot of heavy kind of ledging reef breaks there. That was sort of the kind of waves I grew up surfing and being interested in with a, with a hardcore crew of bodyboarders, and that was sort of more slabby sort of reef breaks. So for me, it felt like, they were the waves that we were looking for, and Joel's such an incredible tube rider that we, obviously for him, he just wants those kind of waves. So it was just on our radar. With, we were keeping an eye on it, and it took a long time to get it that like that day. And that day was pretty wild, and it was quite big. And there was no one around. There were no houses on the point or anything at that point. It was just um, you just walked across paddocks, and and there it was. And we didn't discover that wave. They, the local guys had been surfing that wave for years, but still it wasn't a popular kind of spot. So it just it fit what, what our histories of surfing, what we, where we came from in surfing. And, and uh, yeah, it was just fun. Like the whole thing was fun. There was no stress. We were working with Kidman's good like that. He doesn't have a, big agendas, and that's how I like to work too. We just... Travelling like that when you've got the time to invest in it and you're not on a schedule 
and you don't have one week to get the job done. We literally were just staying as long as we needed. It provides you with a different kind of experience. It's not like fast food, fly in, fly out, sort of swell missions where you're targeting a swell and you're flying in, and that's what people do now because it's so productive. But it's a different, it's a different experience altogether. It's more in, in tune with. The, the whole of the environment, not just the actual wave itself, but it's the land, it's, it's the landscape and it's the frontal weather. And that's what Ireland was like at that point. And the surfers that were surfing in Ireland, they were tough. It's a it's a fucking hard place to grow up and, and to surf. And you've got to be, I mean, they're hard fucking people, men and women surfing in those, in those waters and wetsuits at the time. Were, were, they were shit compared to what they are today but they were still a lot better i guess than what these guys have been learning to surf in and it's just it's a it's a wild place it's windy and you've got to wait for the right day and there's not it's not easy it's not an easy experience so i think it sorts out you've got to really have that connection to be a surfer growing up in ireland and actually get to a level where you can surf some of those waves because they're challenging waves. Just prior to the uh, Narrabeen Classic, uh, just prior to, to Gabe's win, and uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating listening to one of the most interesting guys in the sport, I reckon. It's not the length. Um, Uncle Mick, MF, gave me a call about a month ago and he said that Gabe was looking for a coach. And um, I just was like, wow, that was a pretty interesting call. Like, we'd been in opposing camps for about a decade, so I would have given it about a 10,000 or one shot to think that this would have ever happened. And all Mick had to say was, like, oh, Gabe's a really good kid. Like, he's he's loyal. He's he's one of the boys. And, and Mick's word, I, I take, you know, like Mick, is probably one of the people I've trusted the most in 25 years. There's nothing he said that he hasn't followed through with or that's been true, so that was enough for me. I'm like, yeah, we'll have a crack. And then um, went from there and everything Mick said turned out to be true. Um, got, along like a, got along like a house on fire. It was really easy. Like, I think MF created that trust to start things off, so we had that foundation where – Mick sort of vouch for both of us, so it, it was um it was a really easy transition, mate. And uh, he he seems to be surfing all right still. Oh, mate! If anyone tells you that they're there to teach somebody like that how to surf, you're going to run for the hills, mate. Like I consider myself, like, all I am, as and I said, and I was always have been as like a basically. I guess like an NFL blocker for someone that's got heaps of talent. I just barge people out of the way and remove obstacles so and let them be um, and give them that freedom. So whatever it takes them on, I just um, basically that's that's what it is. It's, it's no mystery. It's just having the ability to stack everything and give him the freedom to perform un, uninterrupted. And yeah, well, it seems to be going well. Unlike Julian, you haven't been sacked twelve times so far in the in the in the short space of time. So he's, he got a <laughs> he, he got a final. Paul, have you got any uh, any questions for? for I've got Frank? a couple actually. Yeah. How, well, just on that, how many times did you get sacked by Julian? Is is part A, and then I, I want to rewind a little bit into Kingy's story. But yeah, how many times have you had the flick as a coach, or, or just in general? 
Well, that's the whole thing, mate. I reckon probably got sacked by Julian about five times, a couple of other organisations, three or four. But I think that I think that's my special source is failure. I've failed at that many things and I've fucked up that many times, but I never fuck up twice. Yep, sweet. Well, maybe Julian thought so. I fucked up five times there, but hey. <laughs> um, okay, I wanted to just rewind a bit of the Kingy Life story. Correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but I thought I've got this memory once of you telling me that when you were a Grom, your first board, and he's originally from, he was from Manchester, right? He was a palm. He went over to Australia, a bit of a, something of a loose cannon. Is am I right in thinking your first board? I'm sure you told me once he stole it from some someone parked at the alley. And that's how you got your first start. Right? Yeah, my father. My father was like a, my father was the second influx of convicts that you guys sent out from the motherland, Paulie. So he had an opportunity. Was what they called the ten pound palms. He could go to prison or he could come out to Australia. So he was a bikey over there. He had double face tattoos and he was um. He, he wasn't the smartest of, um, of bikies. He had a tattoo with a scarab beetle, a dung beetle, so he was importing hashish and stuff. So that's like, you know, those things roll shit. So it was basically like the cops knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't – he was no rocket science. So I was on the back of his motorbike when I was about eight years old and he must have been down the alley and saw this poor guy just tried to stash his surfboard um, underneath his car. Because it was, you know, he didn't have room, and it was a little what we got in Australia called a Datsun 180, and they, they're kind of like a, I guess, a European version of a mini miner. So he's seven six, didn't fit in the thing. Um, so I didn't know any different. My dad's just run over there and grabbed that. We'll chuck it on the back of the motorbike, and off we went. And then that was the start of my surfing, and pretty much um, the rest of the story of my life. I think every Christmas present I got, it never came wrapped. It just came. Came um, my first bike. Everything got done. I don't. It just. Um, it just came from from an old man some somewhere and somehow. But um, at the same time, I guess in the old age, like now, you get a little bit older and, and reflective, and there is a lot of gratitude. You know, he definitely taught me how to hustle and recognise opportunity, and basically, if I did everything. I could possibly do to me not like him, I was going to be successful. So that was a good lesson. I thank you, Pops. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I, was going to, I was going to come on to that just in terms of, you know, being on tour and that hustle, but also even maybe it's a little bit of a cliche, but just, you know, the Brazilians, they don't all come from the most privileged background. What, what I've found is that reflectiveness is why the Australians and the Brazilians might not necessarily always got along was because... Um, we look in the mirror and you see yourself. You see what Australians used to be and Brazilians have taken that and run with it and it's like they've shoved it in our face for what we once were. So I think that was a real sort of enlightening moment um, in the time that I've spent that I just learned that it's like you don't like looking at yourself sometimes and especially if you've got a head like mine or Mondays, you don't want you don't want to see yourself at all. So it's very it's very confronting to look in the mirror. More on that issue of fathers and daughters and, and sons, like Gabriel's not travelling with his <coughs> his dad uh this trip. And I think Carissa more, she I think her dad hasn't come this trip as well, maybe for the first time. I think quarantine might have played a part, but isn't that that that's a a good thing, isn't it, for these surfers to, to finally, like, 
you know, they're 25, 27. They, they really shouldn't have their parents travel with them anyway. Have you noticed that change this trip or in general? For sure. Like I said, it's an independence and with that comes comes power as well that, the, that they are capable of doing it themselves. And, and I just think that with anything, it's, it's very comfortable and, especially if you talk about high performance, high performance is discomfort. So for them to be uncomfortable is growth. And I think that that's vital. And and you can probably see it in the first event and the upcoming events, like where they're starting to like, you know, yeah, they own it more like as in, yeah, because it's, it's different, but you need change too. You need to constantly evolve. Like you can't just bring the same game. I suppose you talk about obstacles, removing obstacles. And I suppose a part of that often is getting, Sometimes it might be the parents. They, obviously, they always, all they want the, is the best for their kids, and that's all, obviously a given. But sometimes they can they can get in the way. I imagine the surf coach. I mean, I speak to your old mate and ours, Richard Dog Marsh, and deal with parents and the, or the entourage around these surfers must be one of the biggest parts of the jobs, is it? Oh, mate, yeah, like like exactly what you're saying. Probably not at this level, like, but I um. I don't know. Like you said, when uh, when I was, I, I, I'm not capable of that. I'm I'm terrible in that space. Like I said, I I, I like that the movie with Jim Carrey. I just can't lie. I can't. I can't. I can't fathom. I can't. Just, I can't. I don't have a filter for that shit. Like, and I think that happened. You know, especially when I was on my deathbed um, with this incident 15 years ago. That just changed everything. Like time and wasting time and wasting time in conversation and wasting time with people that are interfering. I just, um, it was just, I I just don't do it. I just can't. Again, I I just think in surf coaching, like I don't even like, we talked about, I hate the title coaching. Like it's such a a dorky thing. It's like an NFL or basketball. They're they're coaches, you know, they're using the athletes as chess payers and strategizing like that person's alone. Once he leaves shore, he's out there by himself and he's just like, if they're not adaptable, like, the ocean's changing every five minutes. It's like, if, if you're thinking you're going to tell them and strategize and, and, and give them, like, like, if you, like, like saying, I just think it's, it's an absolute crock of shit if you're going to dictate or tell these people, especially at this level. Like, there might be a space for it in the whitewash or telling someone not to go out in a rip near the rocks. That's just, you know, there's an element of dictatorship in the first week of surfing. But other than that, it's sports and art. It's not, it's not, you're going to get your freaking pens in your sock and tell these crew. And I think that again, is one of the biggest issues is that, and back to the reason why I, I think my strengths, my failure, because a lot of these other guys were pro surfers. So they won, they were successful. So they're kind of like stuck in a generation of when they were successful. So they're kind of like reliving that dream, like trying to stand in the cameras and relive that that generation. You know, it was like my old man. My old man, he had his best year in the 70s. So he had a hairdo like Elvis and listen to Elvis until the day he died. He never evolved past his generation. So I was like, fuck, like it's just kind of comical, really. I find the thing pretty funny. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to come in there. I'm, I find myself, I'm sort of of the opposite ways. I can't tell the truth. I like, I, I'm a, like everything I say is just, <laughs> I'm sort of 
some sort of confection to try and get the world to sort of go in my favor these days. I'd love to snap out of it, mate. Maybe we should hang out more and I'll, I'll we'll, both of us will go back and sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah, I've got a question about, about coaches, <laughs> coaches on tour. I think what quite interests a lot of people is just sort of tour life. Everyone watches the heats. That's in some ways, some of the least interesting aspects of, of what goes on. But I'm just thinking that there's always a camaraderie between people that do the same job. I mean, I like some surf journalists. I, I don't like others as much, but there is that sort of camaraderie. <laughs> just in terms of some of the coaches, you mentioned Dog, and I'm sure you weren't referring to him about people stuck in the past, but, um, <laughs> you know, there's we've got Micro, and I guess is Snake still kicking about? Like, just tell us how it goes down. Do you guys get together and have a pizza and just whinge about your surfers and go, oh, fuck. It's <laughs> fix by tomorrow morning. Like, does that... Do you have a little whinge together in the smoko room? How does how does how's coach camaraderie on tour? <laughs> uh, it's a it's a really good question. Like um, dog dog, like for me is like he's been like my mentor. And even though like I'm six foot three and ninety five, sometimes a hundred kilos, and he he's five four and fifty kilos. But it's like that thing with the horse. Like I still look up to him, even though. <laughs> Um, I'm constantly looking down on him, so it's a kind of a contradictive time. Because <laughs> I still, like I said, he was such a hero from like when I was a grom growing up. So me and him, we shared that journey. Um, and when I got that, when I first started on this game with Red Bull um, in 2005, he was the first person that I employed. Like I'm just like that guy's just because that way, like we can run stuff off each other, like good cop, bad cop, and we share a lot. Like obviously. You know, like we shared our lives, and 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 we're best mates. Really, like was the best man at my wedding. So, but we clash. We always clash. There's always there's confrontation. But um, without a doubt, um, we work better as one than we do. Like it's like the two of us are one. So I think that that's kind of our superpower. And I, I yeah, like I, I he just keeps keeps being on the road, right? Um. Holy, like I said, um, I, I, you know, we, we've we've crossed so many elements of our career, and Holy is just the nicest human. Like, um, he's an absolute like champion. Like, he can't. Yeah, I, I really, really respect and, and like Holy, but we don't really share much. Everybody, because you can't. Like, like I said, the really good coaches, which is like Holy and Dog, that have been there for forever. Um, you can't. That, that's the, you can't not it's not something that you can put a hat on and, and you're a coach and then you go home and yourself again it's like how we live reflects in coaching so it's like you can't like yeah you can't kind of fake that and and again that's like, for sure it's guaranteed by being sacked so often because um i'm a i'm a cunt <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to that you know, Paulie, like you, you've seen what it's like, mate. When you're in Hawaii, you didn't paddle out the sunset. I made you walk around. I took your car off you. I took your balls off you. I called you pretty hard. Basically, drove you back to the airport and put you on a plane back in '98. I was hoping this was going to. I was hoping this was That's not nice, is it? See, that's like, I, I was born like that, Paulie. I was born. Like He's told that story on the, on the podcast before. I'm pretty sure. If you're not honest and you're not direct, and and if they're in, offended, insulted by who you actually are, then yeah, it's just there's not enough time time to be around those people. And like we said, we've been we've been mates for 25, what 20, 20, me, Paulie, 25, Monday, 20, 
Um, so I'm better. Yeah. I'm, so I'm better. yeah, me first, Monday second. <laughs> okay. Just because you know, just just get that established. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um. Okay, back. Let's get back on Medina because you know enough about you, Kingy. Who cares? Um. Let's think back to the last year the tour ran properly and the B incident in Portugal with Kayo and the big fucking sort of poo storm of everyone sort of wading in and blah, blah, blah. What I'll just be interested in is a sort of theoretical and, you know, you can, what, what would your like debrief after the heat? If you, if you were debriefing, if you were debriefing Medina, you know, sounds like in a job interview and they, they give you like a, a sort of scenario and ask you a question. I'll just be interested. What, what would have been your debrief to him? Because I mean, I guess that kind of cost him, kind of cost him the title, didn't it? That little, that little hoo-ha on a three foot kind of onshore day. 100%. And, you have to respond, not react. So reactiveness is like the lizard brain when you short circuit and you do something that makes you do your response to be completely irrational. So the response is, again, like disengaging, taking a mid-range gauge and figuring out what you have to do. And, and yeah, so it's, it'd, be that, it'd be that simple. Like, um, and, and the thing is as well, like I noticed – Medina's like no one else I've come across ever. Like, um, as in he will, he won't, he he, he would have learned from that. Um, and he's, he grows, he's grown constantly. Again, that comes with age too, where you're less reactive. Um, so that would be that. It'd be that simple. Like, yeah, you just yeah, there's, there's no need for that. If it all goes really well, uh, best best case scenario. Can you see yourself maybe with a little dangly earring with you and Neymar and Gabrielle and in your sort of in your underpants in a sort of toga party in a club, like a white party somewhere in Rio or something at the end of the year? Is that, is that kind of how you're kind of mapping it out to finish off? And you're like, you employ a dog as a little security guard at the front. Just so he gets to wear a little black, a little black tie and he's with a little earpiece. That was pretty left field there, Paulie. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. I haven't seen anything like that. I only just focus on on his surfing. I don't, I don't dabble in that side. I'm barely on social media, so I just, I, I, I don't actually know what you're talking about. But it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. <laughs> Classic King, straight bat, play with the straight bat, mate. I love it. That's why we love you. The tour has come together so fast and. It's sort of all in Australia right now. I just, of course, you're right on the inside of it. We're all, I know I'm writing about it, but I don't, I, you know, I make most of it up, as you well know, Andy. And, you know, we're, 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 on, we're on the outside. But how is it being right ensconced in it? Is it? Does it feel like this professional surfing gig is back on track and it's sort of heading in the right direction? Yeah, I, I, would, I reckon I'm, I'm far from being an optimistic person, but I was surprised by the energy around Newcastle and then to actually get surfing going again. Like everybody seems to be kind of appreciative that they've got that, that, that it's back, you know, it's, it's like that, I know it's fucking cliche, but it's like, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. So even though it's not in idyllic locations, it's still to see the performance level and, and see that, like I, I'm, I'm a huge fan, to be quite honest. I think it's going to be the best place that ever. And I don't know what it's been like for you guys in Europe, but in Australia, like, since COVID, because we were allowed to go to our beaches, like, the board shapers and stuff, they're six months back. Um, 
the, the popularity of it, the brands have taken off again and the popularity in our sport, I just reckon it's been able to um, deliver it and articulate it. With your, your surfers on tour, you're not really coaching them, telling them how to do a cutback, et cetera, et cetera, obviously. Although, you know, you like worked at different levels. So my next coaching challenge I'm setting you, you, you got two surfers in an event, one's Monday, one's me. And I want to know what some advice you're giving us. And I'll just, just as a little bit of info, you, I don't know if you know, Monday's nickname's Barton Burridge for his sort of similarity between <laughs> two, two well-known surfers, male and female, both goofies. Um, and obviously you, you mentioned, you mentioned an alleged lack of charging 18 foot sunset when I was 21. That's, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. I just want to know a couple of, a couple of coaching tips, either for surfing or just for life or yeah, particularly surfing. What, what do Monday and I each need to do to really kind of take it to the next level and get through to the round of 228? For Monday, um, it would all come back to his preparation. Um, I did a trip with him. We were hunting, ship sterns with Jamie O'Brien back in 2001 and he jumped off the rocks and slid out and we're like, oh, what the fuck's going on there? Like, cause he put, he's forgot to put wax on his board, but he actually forgot to put fins in his board. <laughs> so I reckon he would go right back to the basics on which way to actually insert the fins, which way they go and actually put him in a board. <laughs> For you, Paulie. <laughs> For you, Paulie, um, you know what? Like I said, and again, I, I don't know what criteria you're going underneath either, Paul. I've never seen you actually surf critically in the pocket or anywhere near the pocket, so to speak. But you do have nice hand jobs, so maybe I'll put you up against a couple of crew. Maybe at the pass would be ideal location with an open collared shirt and your fringe flapping with a northwest wind. <laughs> Okay, so I need to get, get, get closer to the pocket for Evans. Monday, stay off the rocks and put your fins in. Priority will now switch to Hopkins. Another mistake by Carissa. She looks really out of sorts. Oh, here's a great looking wave for Yolanda. She's up. She pulls in behind the section. And another out with a spit. Huge alley-oop lands it. And the crowd goes wild. Tell you what, Ben, I haven't seen Olympic scenes like this since Super Saturday at London 2012. So, low tide around 1.30 local time. This bank should stop. I've just been handed a piece of paper here, Paul. It's a news nobody wants to hear. The IOC have confirmed Steph Gilmore has been disqualified after failing two drug tests, testing positive for anabolic steroids. It's the biggest story of the game so far for all the wrong reasons, Ben, after the Australian Coxless Fours were disqualified for having an electric motor in their rowing boat. This is a new low for the Aussies. So Manuel Salman now looking for a 7-6-3 to get back into first. Medida, as we expected, looking very comfortable on the running left. Whoa, here's, here's something we don't see too often at surf events, but not uncommon in the Olympics, a streaker. 
He's sprinting across the sand towards competition area. Oh, he dodges a tackle by head of security and biohazards, Bernie Page. He's as nude as the day he was born, and I tell you what, this fan's got some pace on him. Oh, that, that, that's no fan. That, that's Kanoa Igarashi. Igarashi, having been knocked out by Federico Moraes in the second round, has stripped nude and is streaking across the breach. I can't believe this, Paul. And he's now running to the shore and going for a naked body surf during the men's final. It's like Rod the Box Curtains are out 89. And as he evades yet more attempts by security guards with tribal tats and 2009 picks of the board shorts to catch him. Jesse Myler Dyer, the commissioner, is waiting out at the shore. He's trying to negotiate with Kanoa. He seems to be having the time of his life. No. No. No, can't, please, make it, make it stop. No. This is BBC One. And now, our Olympic coverage continues from Tokyo. It's surfing with Ed Lee and Ben Mundy. Ed. Ed, I thought we were mates. It's called the British Broadcasting Corporation. Mundy's Australian. And that rollercoaster of emotions in just a moment. But first of all, let's start the top stars because that was pretty incredible very challenging then. yeah it's a long day they all surfed far no you okay love have you got the night terrors again was it the one where you were trapped in a well and the only way out was to do the magic seaweed instagram captions for a thousand years no oh god it was much worse than that oh i dreamt that ed lee from ski sunday asked monday to do the olympic surf commentary on bbc with him and not me Oh, my love. That's just silly. They'll never do that. Monday? Ben Monday? I'm wide awake now. I'm going to go in the spare room and read Wavelength Volume 261 for a bit. See if that helps me back off to sleep. Night, love. Love you. (laughs) 